Good morning. Let me invite you, if you're not there already, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to try to preach from my iPad this morning. So I brought my, my printed notes just in case we have a malfunction, but uh, trying to get used to this newer technology. Hopefully we won't. When I talked to uh, or emailed with Pastor Myers, he told me that during the Advent season, um, oftentimes different themes, virtues are focused on, and that today the focus would be on hope. So I thought I would bring a message today on that topic from 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's just uh, read again verses 3 through 7, all right, which is sort of the heart of this passage that I want us to focus on this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. The apostle writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, we come to you this morning feeling that we need some encouragement. We need your grace. We understand, Lord, that one of the primary ways by which you provide us with grace is through the ministry of your word. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that your spirit would come and open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in the scripture. That our faith would be strengthened. That our love for you and for the saints would become fervent. And we pray, Lord, that our hope, Lord, would become vibrant. We ask this, Lord, for your glory, but also for our eternal happiness. In Jesus' name, amen. Just two days ago, Friday, November the 7th at 8 o'clock in the morning, a church and six homes were burned to the ground by an Islamic terrorist in Indonesia. What was even more tragic is the fact that four people were killed. Four church members, three of them by machete, one of them was burned alive in the church building. 
With our attention so focused upon what's happening here in America, we often lose sight of the kind of suffering that Christians are enduring all over the world. I want us to think for a moment this morning that if we had the opportunity to write to the families of some of those who were killed in Indonesia, perhaps we had a chance to write to the spouse of one of those who perished, or perhaps to a child whose parent was killed, or a parent whose child was taken. What would we say? What words could we employ in order to encourage their hearts? What passage of scripture would we take them to, to give them hope? Well, I think one passage we could turn to would be this passage in Peter's first epistle. Peter's first letter to Christians was addressed to Christians who at that time in their experience were undergoing a lot of suffering. They were experiencing persecution from a hostile culture. In fact, the first epistle to Peter refers to suffering persecution at least 15 times. In fact, it was severe enough that in chapter 4, verse 12, Peter can refer to it as a fiery ordeal which had come upon them. Now, we know from history that the first wave of Roman persecution would take place in just a few years within the time that Peter had written this letter, or actually just a few months, to be more precise. In fact, in that persecution, Peter would lose his own life. And as we read this letter, I suspect that Peter could already see the dark clouds of persecution on the horizon. He knew it was coming, and so he wrote this letter in order to prepare these believers for the storm. He writes this sort of pastoral letter in order to comfort them and encourage them as they're already beginning to experience the very beginnings of this wide-scale persecution. Well, friends, what Peter writes to these struggling believers in the first century is still just as relevant to you and I 2,000 years later. 2020 has been a remarkable year. It's been a year of challenges, a year of setbacks, a year of uncertainties, and certainly we don't want to compare our suffering today to the suffering that some of these early Christians faced or even the suffering of those Christians in Indonesia. Nevertheless, you and I are faced with hardships, with challenges, the challenges of unemployment, the challenges of chronic illness, the challenges perhaps of an unsaved spouse or unsaved children. And of course, sooner or later, we all have to face the prospect of death, which is perhaps the greatest challenge each of us individually will experience. I know I've been thinking about that more often. I've turned 57 this year. And uh, when I was younger, death was always sort of theoretical. But as I'm beginning to see some of my contemporaries pass from this life, 
death has become more of a concrete reality that I'm trying to prepare for. And so Peter's words are designed to encourage and inspire us in the midst of the kind of trials and tribulations that we have to face. And if I were to encapsulate his message in a phrase, I would refer to it as the believer's living hope. And if you want a title for our message this morning, that would be it. The believer's living hope. And I want to develop that theme under two simple headings. If you're taking notes, this should be easy. First of all, the believer's hope defined. And secondly, the believer's hope confirmed. All right? So in the first place, we're going to ask the question, what is Peter talking about when he speaks of this living hope? And then secondly, we're going to try to address the question, on what basis does this hope rest? Okay? So children, make sure you take notes and quiz mom and dad around the table this afternoon. Make sure they've been paying attention. Okay? All right. So first of all, the believer's hope defined. What, according to Peter, is this living hope? Well, I think as many of you are familiar, the biblical idea of hope can refer to one of two ideas. First of all, it can refer to the confident expectation of blessing, or secondly, it can refer to the future blessing in which we have confident expectation. You see the difference? One is the sort of subjective aspect of hope. The other is the objective. The one is what we feel. I feel confident. I have a conviction or an expectation of something in the future. That's the subjective dimension. Or there's that objective aspect to hope. The thing I'm hoping for, the blessing itself, those circumstances that are going to turn out in my favor. Let me try to illustrate the difference between the two. And since it's Christmas season, I'll pick an illustration that particularly I think you young people can identify with. When I was a young boy, I always had a hard time sleeping the night before Christmas. Children, why do you suppose that was the case? Why is it hard to go to sleep on Christmas Eve? Well, for me, at least, one of the reasons it was difficult was that I felt excitement. Because there were these boxes under a Christmas tree that were wrapped, and they had my name on it. And inside those boxes were things that I was hoping for. Now, I can describe that hope in terms of the excitement that I felt, the expectation that I had. Now, my mom and dad would have called that a nuisance because that hope and excitement was that which woke them up at five in the morning. They felt a little tap on the bed. Hey, can we get up yet? Go open presents? Okay, but that feeling of anticipation, that's that subjective aspect to our hope. But on the other hand, I could also describe the items inside those gift-wrapped boxes as my hope. 
that BB gun was my hope, or the new pair of Nike sneakers, that was my hope, or the, the, the Panasonic cassette player boombox was my hope. See, I'm dating myself now. Some of you are saying, what's a cassette player? It's like an MP3 player, okay? All right? But, but those, that, I could say that those things were what I was hoping for. They were my hope, all right? That was the objective aspect of it. Or maybe I can illustrate on a more serious level. I'm confident, all right? So when I say I'm confident, I'm referring to a feeling. I have an expectation that what you and I are doing this morning, gathered together in worship, is not a waste of time. I have an expectation that meeting together under the ministry of God's word is going to eventually bear eternal fruit, joy and happiness forevermore. On the other hand, if I can shift my focus from the attitude of hope to the object of our hope, then I start thinking of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All right, that's going to be the realization of us worshiping together to sing praise from, uh, to God. All right, that's the thing hoped for. All right, so do you guys see the difference? There's the subjective attitude of hoping. There's the things for which we hope. Okay, hopefully I didn't just eat a dead horse. Okay? But I want to try to make that distinction clear. And then I want to ask this question, which of those two does Peter have primarily in mind? Okay, in verse 3 of our passage, when he talks about our living hope, where is the emphasis? Where does his accent fall? Is he thinking primarily of that subjective attitude, or is he thinking primarily of that objective reality for which we hope? Well, some commentators believe Peter is thinking primarily of the subjective attitude. They say this in the first place because he refers to it that way several other times in this epistle. For example, in this very chapter, verse 13, look with me, where Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There, obviously, Peter's talking about an attitude, a mindset, an inward disposition. Set that hope fully, Peter says, on God's grace. Or look at verse 21, where Peter speaks of God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. And then he says, so that your hope and your faith are in God. Obviously there, Peter's referring to that, again, inward attitude. Your faith, your hope are placed in God. And then in chapter 3, in verse 15, um, Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is what? That is in you. Okay, so obviously there... Again, he's talking about that attitude, that mindset, that disposition. And so they say that's probably what he's referring to in, in chapter 3, verse 1, the living hope. They would also point out that when Peter uses 
the adjective to describe it as a living hope, he has in mind the idea of a vibrant hope, or as the King James translates it, a lively hope. In other words, Peter's not referring here to just wishful thinking. He's not referring to the kind of hope you might have when you buy a lottery ticket. All right? Most of us know that lottery tickets, we've got, we'll have better success getting struck by lightning, right? Then, um, so it's sort of wishful thinking. It's hope so, maybe so, probably not so. All right? No, Peter's talking about a, a vibrant hope, an enthusiastic hope, a certain hope, a hope that's alive with confidence. Now, I do believe Peter is talking about that kind of hope in general when he speaks of the subjective aspect of hope in his epistle. Okay? But I want to suggest to you, I don't think that's where the emphasis belongs here in verse 3 of chapter 1. I think rather the accent falls upon the future object of hope. I say that because, if you look back at our text, in verse 4, Peter is going to explain what he means by living hope in verse 3. In fact, the wording of verse 4 is parallel to the wording of verse 3. Verse 3 tells us God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, the Greek preposition translated to is a preposition of purpose or result. God caused you and I to be born again for the purpose of or resulting in a living hope. And then the same preposition begins verse 4. So the two verses we could read this way. Listen carefully. God caused us to be born again for the purpose of a living hope. That is to say, verse 4, for the purpose of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, folks, at the very beginning of his letter, because this whole letter is really going to be focusing on that that full-orbed dimension or, or concept of Christian hope, but at the very beginning of his letter, Peter wants to focus our attention upon the objective reality on which we have fixed our subjective hope. He doesn't want to focus primarily upon the attitude of confidence in and of itself. Rather, he places the emphasis upon the solid object of our confidence. He focuses on our eternal inheritance. Now, for the people to whom Peter was writing, that word inheritance was meaningful. In fact, when they heard the word inheritance, they would have immediately recalled the promises God had made to Abraham, the promises of a land. However, Peter uses some descriptions of this living hope that would contrast the new covenant promise of inheritance with the old covenant promise of inheritance. Notice the adjectives. He describes it as imperishable, that is, free from decay. Okay? It's not, gonna, it's not going to decay. It's not going to corrupt or get old. Furthermore, it's undefiled. It's free from sin. And then thirdly, unfading. 
that is free from diminished glory. Doesn't get old, doesn't, doesn't fade, doesn't lose its beauty. In chapter 3 of his second epistle, Peter will go on to describe this inheritance in terms of a new heavens and a new earth in which only righteousness dwells. Now, with that in view, I want you to just think of how encouraging that would have been to the Christians to whom Peter was writing. From other New Testament passages, we have the picture that many of these Christians were losing their homes. Their properties were being confiscated. They were losing their occupations. They were being forced to flee. Or if they didn't flee, they faced imprisonment. Just think about that for a moment. Everything that you live for and work hard for, that inheritance which was in your name for generations, all of a sudden is gone. And you and I here in California worry that our Second Amendment is going to be taken away. Right? We, I mean, I don't know, I worry about it sometimes, right? Your guns are going to be confiscated. You're going to lose that privilege that you have. But, but folks, can you imagine, what if the government took your house, your property? What if they forced your employee, your employer to fire you? You lost your job. What if you faced prison? Or what if, as it was the case for some of these Christians, we faced execution? Well, again, this is, this is the kind of persecution that the Christians to whom Peter is writing faced. And in essence, Peter's saying to them, look, don't worry. Don't be overcome by fear. You may lose your property. You may even lose your own life. But ultimately, that doesn't matter, Peter says, because you have an inheritance that cannot be touched by fire. You have an inheritance that cannot be lost because you die. You have a hope, Peter would say, that is alive evermore. And brothers and sisters, that hope which Peter promises those Christians that hope belongs to you and me. If we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that inheritance is the possession of the members of Veritas Church. And so we don't have to be anxious about the rising levels of unemployment or the possibility that the stock market may crash. Okay? That could happen. Not saying we don't, we're not concerned about it, I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise in our planning. I'm just saying we don't have to be overcome by fear. We don't have to be overcome by fear that we might contract COVID-19 and end up in the hospital or that we might be diagnosed with cancer tomorrow. We don't have to be gripped by anxiety because of the political instability of our land. We don't even have to be overcome with fear that we might lose our First Amendment. Now, again, I'm not suggesting we should be indifferent to these things. 
But I'm just simply suggesting, folks, that if we really catch hold of what Peter's telling us, then ultimately those things, though they are real losses, though they entail real pain, but all of that loss and pain will disappear when we come to enjoy that inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. You're probably familiar with the saying that life is a stage and we, all, we are all actors. You heard that before? There's actually an element of truth in that. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but... Uh, hold on a minute. <laughs> My screen just went dead. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Um, uh, I did it again. So my point in saying that life is uh, a stage and we're all actors, oh, okay, had it turned upside down, is, is this fact, okay? Think about this, all right? You can be an actor on a stage, and you can be robbed, you can be attacked, you can be slain with a sword, you can even die. And yet, you don't have to worry because it, it's, it's going to be over, right? Curtain's going to fall, brush yourself off, it's all done. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say, make an exact equation with what you experience on a stage with what happens in real life, okay? I don't know if you saw the movie The Revenant, uh, where... Uh, I can't remember his name, DiCaprio, the actor in it, is, is suffering a grizzly bear attack. Okay, and I mean, they make it look realistic. Okay, but you and I know that all of that CGI special effects stuff, that isn't real, right? It's not really comparable to a real grizzly bear attack. So I'm not comparing it that way, but I am saying that there is a real sense, folks, in which for the Christian, this life is not the end of the story. In fact, it's really just the beginning. This life is sort of the preface to the book. And the entire story of the book is nothing but happiness and bliss and joy forevermore. But now that brings us to a burning question, okay? How can you and I know for certain that this hope is not just wishful thinking? As they say, pie in the sky, by and by. Well, that brings us, secondly, to the believer's hope confirmed, the basis on which Peter rests our hope. And I want to highlight for you two reasons that Peter highlights here for these believers. The first is rooted in God's mercy, and the second is rooted in God's power. God's mercy and God's power. First of all, Peter stresses God's mercy and he anchors God's mercy or shows it manifested in the historical resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Dear friends, apart from God's mercy, we would have no inheritance. Right? It's not something that we earn. 
It's not something we could ever deserve. Our hope finds its ultimate basis in God's unmerited favor. But notice God's mercy birthed us to a living hope, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, our hope is grounded in Christ's resurrection through which God's mercy is displayed. Now, somebody might say, well, why, why isn't it the death of Jesus, his crucifixion on the cross? Why isn't that where God's mercy is displayed? Well, certainly it is the resurrection. I don't think Peter would deny that, okay? But Peter grounds our hope in the resurrection of Jesus because Christ's resurrection confirms the goal which his death accomplishes. And Peter is not just proclaiming this as sort of a theoretical, theological truth. Peter is teaching this, folks, as something he knows by personal experience. Do you remember that uh, after the resurrection of Christ, Peter was not, or rather, I'm sorry, after the crucifixion of Christ, Peter was not a very excited man. All right? He wasn't brimming with enthusiasm. He's very discouraged. In fact, Jesus actually predicted that. He says, you're going to be filled with sorrow when I depart. And so Peter was discouraged. Every time the sun rose and a rooster crowed, I'm sure Peter remembered having denied Jesus. And there was a sense, folks, in which Peter's hope died with Jesus and was buried with Jesus in the tomb. But then something wonderful happened. On Easter morning, we read that Mary Magdalene ran, having seen an empty tomb. She ran to Simon Peter. She told him and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's a reference to John. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they went to the tomb. And it says, both of them were running together. And I have a painting in my house by Eugene Bernand, a Swiss painter, that depicts this particular event. It shows Peter and John running to the tomb. Peter's kind of holding his chest because he's out of breath. Okay, uh, John's folding his hands like this. And, and, and guess what their eyes convey? They convey the idea of hope that's been reborn. When Jesus died and was laid into the hope, it seems that their hopes were dashed. But now that he's risen from the tomb, their hope is alive again. And that hope is driving them to the tomb, the place from which Jesus has risen. So the death of Christ by itself did not produce hope in Peter. But the resurrection of Christ most certainly did. And what it did for Peter, it can do for you and me. Let me highlight three ways in which the resurrection can strengthen our hope. Number one, the resurrection assures us that Christ's atoning death has been successful. That is to say, you and I can know that God's wrath has been pacified, that his justice has been completely satisfied because Jesus has risen from the grave. As one theologian has put it, the resurrection is God's amen to Jesus' loud 
cry, it is finished. And therefore the guarantee that by Jesus' death the believer has indeed been reconciled to God and made righteous. And so the resurrection of Christ assures us his death has been successful. Secondly, Christ's resurrection assures us that we have a living Savior. Think about that, young people. There are other religions in the world. But the leaders of those other religions, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, they died and their bodies are in the grave. But not so with the leader of our religion, not so with Christianity. As Peter told the Jews on Pentecost, the resurrection means that God has installed Jesus as Lord on the throne as the Messiah. He's alive. He's alive even now, ever living to make intercession for us. So the resurrection assures us we have a living Savior. And then thirdly, the resurrection ensures our own resurrection as well. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. If you and I were to take every single son of Adam, all right, and line him in a big line, we could go down that line and look at him and her and him and her, and what would it be that we could say of certain of each one? He's going to die. She's going to die. They're going to die. Right? As the writer of the Hebrew says, it is appointed unto men. It is appointed unto the sons of Adam once to die. Well, Peter and Paul are basically telling us, just as we can be sure about that, we can also be sure that all who are in Christ shall, not might be, not maybe, but shall be made alive. That's not pie in the sky by and by. That's absolute, concrete reality on which our hope can rest. Friends, can you see how God's mercy anchors our hope in Christ's resurrection? But that's not all. It brings us to the second reason why we can be so sure about this inheritance. Not only is our hope rooted in God's mercy, but it's also based in God's power. God's power. As Peter puts it in verse 5, By God's power we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. All right, And then the, the revelation of our salvation is going to take place in conjunction with, verse 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's power. All right, what does God's power do for us? Well, God's power is that which is reserving our inheritance in heaven. You notice Peter says it's reserved. God is reserving it in heaven heaven that's good because our treasures on earth can be corrupted right by rust or moth or mice or thieves that break in and take but treasures in heaven peter would say are beyond harm's reach they're completely secure moreover peter says it is reserved notice for you in heaven literally the last phrase of verse 4 reads this way reserved in heaven for the purpose of you 
In other words, folks, it has our name on it. It's been reserved for us. It's not, the inheritance is not on a first-come, first-served basis in which God's just kind of waiting, you know, hoping some people take him up on the offer and they make it to heaven. No, 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 no. Peter's saying it's been booked. It's been reserved. Jesus put it this way in John 14, speaking to his disciples. He just told them that he was going to depart, talking about his death. Um, he says, your heart's going to be full of sorrow. But then he says this, John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Many rooms in my Father's house. I'm preparing one for you. Now that's remarkable. I know when I was younger and uh, read this out of the King James, it says many mansions. And I used to have the picture of, of, of you know, this great estate in the new heavens and new earth and, and I would get my own mansion and so you know the ESV seems a little less uh, promising to us you know we just get a room but actually it's the other way around it's the other way around folks the king of heaven God the father and his son prince Jesus are saying this, that in my father's palace, that's how it can be translated. A house, when it refers to royalty, is a palace. In my father's palace, there's a place for you. And that underscores the greater intimacy, folks. It's not just like we're going to live someplace on God's property in a little mansion. No, God's saying, I want you to come live with me in my palace. And I've got a place reserved for you. Moreover, notice, not only is he reserving our inheritance in heaven, but he's keeping us for that inheritance. By God's power, verse 5, we are being guarded. And, and, and the, the tense of that verb is, is in the present. It has the idea of a sort of a continuous activity. God's continually guarding us through his power, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, folks, not only is God keeping our inheritance safe for us, God is keeping you and me safe for that inheritance. No thing, nobody can rob us of that hope. Jesus even underscores this point in John chapter 10, where he says, I give my sheep eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And how exactly does God protect us? Well, it says he protects us through faith. Through faith. Now, some people come to this passage and they want to place all the emphasis there. All right. In other words, they want to make it sound like Peter's real point is that you all better persevere in faith or you're going to lose out on your inheritance. Okay. Well, certainly Peter believes in the necessity of faith, right? This is the believer's living hope. 
And Peter would say that we must persevere in faith. All right, that's true. But I don't think that's the point Peter's making here. I think rather that Peter's telling us that the very faith that has kept us in the way is itself a gift of God. God keeps us by his power through the gift of faith, which he gives. In other words, Peter's saying something very similar to what Jeremiah the prophet had foretold when he spoke of the coming new covenant. In these words, he says, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, I will give to them one heart and one way that they might fear me forever, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not, they will never turn from me. The Christian college I went to back out east was founded by a Methodist preacher. And as many of you know, Methodists generally, most of them at least, hold the view that the believer could potentially lose his salvation and stop believing right? Interestingly, though, the founder of my school didn't really believe that. He didn't believe that would happen. And uh, somebody once asked him, what do you think, uh, Dr. Bob, what do you think? Do you think a, a believer can stop believing and lose his salvation? And his answer was, why in the world would a genuine Christian ever want to stop believing in Jesus Christ? And I think that's the point Peter would make. The point that Jeremiah was making. In other words, folks, God gives us the kind of faith that doesn't ever want to be lost. That doesn't ever really want to stop believing in Jesus. I'm not saying we never struggle. We do. But we don't ultimately want to depart from our Savior. He gives us a persevering faith. He uses the preaching of the word. He uses the fellowship of the saints. He uses other means of grace to keep us in the way, and that faith, the faith that brought you here this morning, by the way, is evidence of the mighty power of God. And so, dear brothers and sisters, that living hope ought to encourage our hearts this morning. And I want to just leave you with a word for the believer and a word for the non-believer this morning in closing. First of all, how does Peter apply this truth to the believer? Sometimes it's helpful when we think of how to apply a passage to just ask the question, how does the writer in Scripture apply it? Okay, How is he applying it to these believers? Well, notice at least two things Peter does. First of all, first of all Peter says, I want you to be happy and thank God. I want you to be grateful to God. Verse 3, blessed could be translated Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things God wants us to do this morning, folks, is to count our many blessings. To take the time to name them one by one. Even in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, we can still count our many blessings. In the midst of economic uncertainty or political instability, We need to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for that living hope, that eternal inheritance. Because, dear friends, it's something that medicine, money, politics cannot ever buy. Secondly, Peter also wants us to be happy people. Verse 6, 
In this, that is, in this living hope, you greatly rejoice, though for uh, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter doesn't Peter doesn't deny he's not a Christian Scientologist that says, well, all the sufferings in this life are just an illusion. No, Peter believed they were real. Nevertheless, Peter does not want us to be robbed of our joy. Okay, he doesn't want us to cope with suffering and hardship like in that sort of stoical fashion, like sometimes when you look at the pictures of how some of the people coped with the Nazi Holocaust or the Stalin's communist regime reign of terror, you see them having adopted a sort of hardened, calloused, uh, stoical disposition. Well, Peter's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to be rejoicing. I want your joy to be inexpressible and full of glory. For after all, according to Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is the Christian's strength. And so despite the various trials we face, we can be a thankful people this morning. We can be a happy people. Because there is an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. That's our living hope. All right? But now in closing, let me say a word to the the non-believer the non-Christian. How does Peter apply this passage to the non-believer? Answer? He doesn't. He doesn't. This living hope belongs only to those who have been, Peter would say, born again. Only those who are kept by God through faith. God doesn't keep anybody through atheism, okay? Through denial but through faith. So Peter would have agreed with the Apostle Paul who said in Ephesians chapter 2 that to be without God is also to be without hope in this world. Nevertheless, Peter would say to you today, it doesn't have to remain so. It doesn't have to stay that way. Peter would say to you what he said to a crowd of people on the day of Pentecost, repent. Turn from your sins. Be baptized by faith in Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And God will give you a new heart. And God will promise you a living hope. You might be saying to yourself, yeah, right. I know sometimes, you know, when people are in that sort of skeptical mode, they look at this promise of heaven, sort of like those promises that the vacation resort people make to you on the phone or in those mailings you get, right? That that all accommodations, all expenses paid, promised vacation in the Bahamas on further investigation doesn't turn out to be so great. I know that by experience. I'll never do that again, okay? And, 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 you know, but sometimes, folks, sometimes that's how non-believers look at Christians, talking about this promise of heaven. They think, ah, you know, it's not all cracked up to be what, it's, what you say it's going to be. But I want you to listen to the words of Jesus, okay? You might say of Peter, well, he meant well, but, you know, he's just not that bright. You may say that about me, and that'd be true, Okay? 
But listen to the words of Jesus. This is what he said to his disciples just before he died and before he rose from the dead. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now listen. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? What's he saying there? He's saying, if, if that were really not the case, I would have never lied to you. Many people want to say, well, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a, an honest man. I agree. Good and honest. But what did he just say there? He's saying this. Look, if that, that inheritance business, if that's just sort of a fantasy, if that's just sort of imagination, make-believe, I wouldn't be preaching about it. I wouldn't be promising it. I wouldn't be telling you that I'm actually going there and I'm reserving a place for you. I don't lie. And my dear friend, this whole book is really a book from Jesus. And he doesn't lie. He makes lots of promises to those who repent of their sins and trust trust in him as Lord and Savior. And he is certain those promises will come true. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, that you'll put your trust in him today so that you won't have to be afraid of what else is going to happen in 2020. You won't have to fear financial loss or the loss of your health or the loss of your life because instead you'll be able to thank God and rejoice in an inheritance reserved for you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for the many promises that are firm and certain and will most surely come to pass for us that are recorded in your word. Help us, Lord, to be grateful people today. Help us to be thankful people. And help us, Lord, to be like the disciples of whom it was said they could not help but to speak of the things which they have seen and heard. In the same way, Lord, help us this, these, these holiday seasons, this Advent season, to be so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude that we can't help but share this message with our neighbors and our friends, our workmates, our family members. For your glory and honor and our eternal happiness, we pray.